Hey guys, if you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast with everything you need all in one place. Let me explain. Anchor has the tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. When hosting on Anchor, you can distribute your podcast on listening platforms like Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and more. And trust me, guys, it works. It's everything you need to make a podcast all in one place. And the best of all, it is totally free. Yes, totally free. So download the Anchor app today or go to anchor.fm to get started. Can you hear me? Can hear you. Can you hear me? Yep, loud and clear. Perfect, perfect. How are you doing today? Good, thanks. How are you, Marco? I'm doing pretty good. Sorry for not joining in at 7. I was in the bathroom, and so I just got out. Plus, decided to get some water, too, just in case, you know, get thirsty. Of course. Exactly. But my girlfriend uh, is not here yet because, I mean, she's been busy at work. Um, but, I mean, should be home soon. But, I mean, it doesn't really matter. I mean, we could still start. But when she gets here, um, I mean, she could also be here when we're doing it, too. I know, so. that. I know that feeling. Whatever you want to do. Well, that's fine. We can still do it now. Yeah, we can still do it now. All right. Whenever you're ready. I mean, I just, just like the free... Uh, uh, free format, how I think is what you call it. Just kind of go with the mm-hmm. flow. That's kind of how um, I do with the podcast. Um, I don't really have like this set questions. Not, <laughs> this is not my first podcast. I've done this before. Yeah, well, that's good. What other podcasts have you done? Uh, I've done Slam the Gavel. I did a segment for the Price of Business show. I did... Um, Let's see, I've done uh, Alienation via the State. Um, I also, I uh, I spoke at the National Federation of Families Annual Conference last month. So I was out Ooh. there as well. Uh, How'd that go? Was no, well, it went great. I mean, uh, despite the fact that of all the places that they could have chosen, they chose Oklahoma City. I mean, if you want to get excited about Oklahoma City, what you have to do is you have to say, well, at least there are less needle, less dirty needles on the ground per capita. But it, yeah, I did have to go that far to get excited about Oklahoma City, but it is what it is. It was a change of scenery and after COVID and everything else and not traveling as much, it was, you know, it was nice to get out of New York. By the way, don't go to New York. It sucks. I mean, uh, is that where you're currently at or where are you currently at? Uh, it's where the, I have the misfortune of residing. <laughs> oh, from New York. I live in Nebraska, the state that people say doesn't exist, but it's where I live. I thought that was Wyoming, but... <laughs> That's another one. Wyoming and Nebraska are kind of the two that people like to associate of not existing, but I'm here. And I could list off a few more. Iowa, Idaho... Uh, let's see, uh, what else doesn't exist? New Mexico, <laughs> a lot I of, keep going. Oh, Alabama, oh, yeah. Mississippi, Arkansas, just, unless you're Bill Clinton. <laughs> there's a lot of places that don't have a big, well-known city. I mean, because Wyoming, the biggest, like, city is Cheyenne, 
with think about like 50 60k population and that's the biggest city oh, yeah. in... exactly wyoming is less than 500,000 people i mean if you look at if you look at the history even to get statehood they you know uh they had to lie about the population of wyoming say it was more than it was to actually get statehood for people that still know their american history <laughs> that's uh actually i just recently uh learned that actually where they had to lie um i think uh back then uh, i think it was you had to have at least fifty-five thousand or somewhere in the fifty thousands um to be known as a state to like register as a state and i think they said they had like over 100k i think or something something around that nature and yeah i and mean I, I, I mean anyway we're getting a lot you know a little off track you know we're here to talk about you know cps and what i do as well so let me let me actually get to that so I'm a child welfare consultant and former child protective services investigator. Mm-hmm. Now, for those of uh, for those of your audience that may not be familiar, child protective services now in Nebraska, I believe they are under the Department of Health and Human Services at the state level. Uh, they are resp- they are the government entity that is responsible for investigating all reports of child abuse and neglect. Now, investigating child abuse and neglect to protect children on its face is pretty virtuous. That's a good thing. Unfortunately, it gets a little more complicated from there. Mm-hmm. Because, first of all, it's the government that's actually doing these investigations. And have you ever had to go to the DMV to renew your driver's license or uh you know take your driver's test or something there's mm-hmm. always a long line there's always some sort of issue uh there's always a whole bunch of paperwork that you have to do you're in the wrong line uh you know unfortunately for a very virtuous thing like protecting children being a government agency it operates with the same contempt the same politics the same inefficiencies that agencies like the DMV and the IRS do too. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the IRS is a cliche. The DMV people relate to more on a broader scale. But yeah, so what ends up happening is it's a good idea in theory, but in practice today, child protective services is truly a mess. Now, I did these investigations in some of the highest crime neighborhoods in New York City mm-hmm. for years. So I've seen it all. I've, you know, I've been threatened with murder. I've had hang up calls. I've been screamed at, yelled at. I was usually called every name under the sun a few times before lunch. Uh, So there's not much that surprises me. But while I was doing these investigations, I saw when the way abuse and neglect, for example, are defined, mm-hmm. or how the government defines a good parent, how they define a good home. Mm-hmm. It is very ambiguous. It is not universal. So the definitions can vary from state to state. But even then, when they're so ambiguous, there's a lot of room to subjectively interpret things. And I saw in this 
I first saw it in Reason Magazine, but this this made national news. There was a case in Pennsylvania that actually made national news mm-hmm. recently, and the mother had kids who were six, eight, and ten, I believe it was, years of age, mm-hmm. uh, and CPS substantiated a case against her, telling her that she can't leave her children alone if they're under the age of 13, and Look, I grew up, my parents let me, you know, hang out with my friends in the neighborhood unsupervised, you know, before I was 13 years of age. And even then, most states, they don't give an age at which you can leave a child unsupervised for any period of time, even Mm -hmm. five minutes. And so sometimes it's something as simple as that. Now, granted, they were going around in the neighborhood and there was a caseworker that lived in the neighborhood and apparently didn't like it and made the call. But sometimes that is really all it takes to upend your family, upend your life. And there's really not much recourse Mm. that you have before, you know, and if the court never gets, if this never goes to family court or juvenile court, for example, then a lawyer is not going to do much for you. And even if that's the case, you're looking at a retainer that's thousands of dollars. That's extraordinarily expensive. There are a lot of people that can't afford that. And I don't know if you've been to the grocery store lately, but the recession is making things look a lot more expensive. Yep. Uh, I used to, going to the grocery store used to be a, you know, a, a ho-hum kind of thing for me. And I'll tell you now, I grimace every time I go to the grocery store because then I have to pull out my credit card and <laughs> it is just, you know, I, what used to cost $30 now costs 70, you know, what used to be a hundred dollar grocery shop is now at least double that sometimes it, you know, it, it really is. But when it's not just food, when it's your kids you're fighting for, Mm-hmm. You're right to have your kids. It's a whole different ball game. And people don't realize a lot of the time just how little it could take, it, it would take to upend a family. This is why I tend to call CPS investigations among the most frightening experiences any parent can endure. The research has shown that one in three children in the United States will be subject to a CPS investigation before they reach the age of 18. Mm-hmm. That's one in three, considering there are 61 million families in the United States. That is a substantial number. I mean, in 2019, there were 2.2 million investigations performed nationwide. Three in every 10 were substantiated. There were half a million children in CPS custody. That's foster care, kinship care, institutionalization, but separated from their parents. And 84% of those removals Mm -hmm. were not due to abuse. They were due to neglect. Maybe there was something about the home or maybe uh, the child wasn't attending school or uh, there was a domestic violence report and a preemptive removal was done. It's it, it, Sometimes it's something as simple as that. It could have been a misunderstanding, an argument. No, no, the child might have heard something 
and therefore they might have PTSD. So we're going to remove until we hear otherwise. And it really can be that bad. So after a while of having the government's resources behind me doing these investigations, mm-hmm. it's it, you don't make seven figures going into the social services fields. You just don't. It, it, go to Wall Street if you want to, you know, it, if you're really looking to make bank. Mm-hmm. You're not going to do it working in child welfare. So obviously, the only other reason to go and do, to go and do something like this is, well, you actually want to help people. Well, if I wasn't, if I couldn't see that I was helping families, and I wasn't making seven figures, then you have to ask yourself, what am I doing there? And that's exactly what I ended up asking. And ultimately, it came down to what I call an impossible choice, which was I had three options. I could make the best of the situation I was in because I had found child welfare to be my calling. I could leave my calling forever, pivot and find another industry. Mm-hmm. Because it was it, it's entirely controlled by the government and government contractors. There is no real private sector for child welfare anymore. Um, and then, of course, there was the third option, which was create what I thought was needed. This was in uh, early this year. We were uh, start finally starting to come out of the pandemic. And I said, you know what? I can do this better. Let's level the playing field. And I started a consulting firm, CPS Protected Consulting Services. Mm-hmm. And what I set out to do was actually help families prepare for and navigate CPS investigations. So let's say CPS shows up at your door. Well, what are you going to do? Should you let them in? Should you not? If they ask for a consent form for your child's medical records, should you sign it? Should you answer their questions? Should you not? Can you record? Can't you? What's your risk? Um, If a case is substantiated against you, what are your options? These are questions people don't realize. And when you're so scared that you might lose your children or a case might be substantiated and there might be consequences, well, you're panicking and you're thinking, how can I impress the CPS investigator? And Mm -hmm. Navigating that minefield without a clear head, which I've never met somebody who can do that very easily. You worry about your family. So during that, during that, it's so easy, so easy to step on a landmine and end up in trouble. It is so easy to do. And so what we do is we can help actually with our child welfare consultants. They're all former CPS investigators. We can actually look at this from the perspective of CPS with our our own experience and actually help you navigate it with the, to minimize the amount of fear, disruption, 
and intrusion that these investigations cause and the duration. Sometimes mm-hmm. working with us can be the difference between 18 months of involved uh, between 18 months of involvement without us and less than 60 days with us. And that's a huge deal, especially because once you get yourself in a mess with child welfare, it is very difficult difficult to dig yourself out. We also offer help preemptively. Let's say a neighbor gets investigated by CPS and it kind of spooks you because it looked a little bit shady the way things went down. Mm-hmm. Well, you know what? We can help you prepare. So before they even show up at your door, you are ready for just about every scenario that they could come up with. And one of the ways that we do that in addition to actually meeting and actually doing the investigation, we have these personalized plans because it's a lot easier to look at a piece of paper that summarize a packet that summarizes everything that we found. It's you know through CPS Protect and for our recommendations, it's much easier to follow those instructions than it is to think on the fly when you are really truly frightened. Mm-hmm. There's really nothing. There's really nothing else like it, and so it's it's a big gamble. I've invested quite a bit in doing this, but I think it's necessary because you can look. There have been plenty of people who have complained about how child welfare works and the countless issues, but there really hasn't been any substantial change. And even when there is reform. Parents aren't getting their desired outcome. And so the question is, if you keep calling the go- telling the government there needs to be reform and it just doesn't happen, then what do you do? Well, it turns out that foster care, kinship care, uh, CPS contracted prevention services, which are CPS contracted service providers in the home, it's a slightly newer development that's designed to reduce the amount of family separations, but really results in more perpetual involvement in some ways because these in-home service providers are mandated reporters and they also uh, are contracted by CPS. So they... in order to not lose those contracts, they have a very low threshold for reporting the smallest things. And it basically puts parents in the, you know, at the burden of either be perfect or have a whole nother investigation. So that be, you know, that being said, how do you actually level the level the playing field and get child protective services to come to the table? Well, if they're mm-hmm. federal funding, if less people are accepting prevention services and going for more private services, community-based organizations, and they're meeting the minimum standard more, so less removals are happening, there's less federal funding coming in, and it changes the incentive structure in such a way that it might make the government willing, more willing to have a conversation because it's very difficult to hold the government accountable. It's very difficult. It's much easier to hold the private sector accountable than government, because is government really going to hold itself accountable? Nope. Not often. And so here, this is 
you know, in a system with really no checks and balances, this is my attempt at offering families a chance to level the playing field and possibly, granted, this isn't happening in a decade. This is something that with perfect, with perfect timing could take 20 years to do, but eventually mm-hmm. bring federal child welfare officials to the table to actually talk about what should good child welfare reform look like. Because I can say, as a former CPS investigator, in a minority of my cases, I did meet some of the most evil people you could imagine. People who truly did unspeakable things to children. Mm-hmm. And there is a need to protect them. But is that the majority of what CPS investigates? Not by a long shot. And the scope of what abuse and neglect are defined as now has just gotten so far out of control that it is. It, it, Parents can't be parents. My Mm. parents weren't perfect. Uh, My mother used to say to me, you know, I'm doing my best with you. Um, I wish you came with an instruction manual, but you didn't. So I'm learning along the way. Mm. And you know what? That's true. And that needs to be taken into account. But because the risk to a CPS worker's job, if they act, on the smallest issue that they see. Uh, So if they remove, if they institute services or something, if they do that and they're wrong, that there really isn't anything going on, there's really no risk to them. They have qualified immunity for investigations and absolute immunity for testimony in court. So, but if they fail to, you know, if they fail to recognize, if they miss a case, a real case of child abuse and neglect, a severe one, and a child dies, guess what? They're in a heck of a lot of trouble. So there is a lot less, there's almost no risk to them if they, you know, if they act on the smallest things. And this, this creates reactions that seem to be out of proportion to what's actually going on because if they don't they get in a lot more trouble unfortunately for example if the court gets involved there's a backlog that can take a very long time and if it gets to a certain threshold depending on the state usually somewhere between 12 and 18 months of a child in foster care kinship care then they may pursue a termination of parental rights but if the Mm. court is so backlogged that you can only actually get in there every maybe four months or so or every six months, how do you actually gauge progress? And so you see families actually lose their children due to that issue alone. Uh, And that's something that actually hinders reunification. So if we can actually help families not only meet the standard, but navigate things and preserve their rights as 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 best as possible, then potentially we can avoid most of the worst case scenarios that currently exist. And it, it's so hard when I see a family that comes to me in hindsight and says, I wish we could, you know, I wish we'd come to you. Or I wish you existed way back when, or I wish I could have afforded it. 
back then because if I could have, maybe I wouldn't be going through this. Mm-hmm. That because we're talking about children here and we're talking about for parents, for most parents, parents that care about their children, the children of their livelihoods, they mean almost everything to them. And so that is a loss that there's not much you can compare that to. Truly. So for for me, this is for me, this is a calling. You know, granted, starting CPS Protect was not easy, simply because I had a pension, I had a salary. Granted, it wasn't the biggest salary, but mm-hmm. I had a comfort. Uh, I, I was living comfortably, but I had a pension, I had benefits. I. Before start before starting CPS Protect to to avoid issues with the conflict of interest laws that apply to former government employees and current actually, um, I had to quit. So I basically left my safety net behind. Mm-hmm. I basically said, I'm going to give this my best shot because doing what's right is really important. I'll admit it has not been easy. This has been pretty rocky. I did this going into a recession. So, unfortunately, when you're talking entrepreneurship, it's not lo- it's not logical. Every logical bone in your body should tell you it's not a smart decision. Mm-hmm. But I knew what I had here, and that's why I'm doing it. Because, I mean, the most expensive for us, for, us, for what we do, uh, we have – so just in case someone moves, we, we separate some of our services so that they don't have to get everything if they need it over again. But li- literally, the, mo- the most expensive recommended – packages that I that we would offer to a family come out to the preemptive consultation home assessment and risk assessment come together for a total one-time payment of 600 bucks which is a lot less than the attorneys will charge and for the peace of mind it really is um, something else I've tried to keep it as low as possible just because I understand how difficult this is so based on the equipment that we actually need, because look nowadays with cybersecurity, the last thing you want is uh, a cyber criminal to get in and obtain this taboo information and make it public. That's the last thing you want. Mm-hmm. And that's particularly expensive. You have opera you have operational costs. Um, you have, Sorry about that. No, you're good. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you have you have the software costs. You have the uh, you know payment process. You have the processing fees. You have you know marketing costs uh, that falls under client acquisition. Uh, you have the uh, cost for regulations, like for us to even exist. 
unfortunately, that costs money too. Uh, there's so much, but uh, I did everything I could to keep the prices as low as possible because I will tell you, I get such satisfaction from when I manage to help a family. There is no other rush like it. And it was what I was looking for when I went to work for my local child protective service and what I failed to find there. Mm -hmm. It is such a difference to be able to be, you know, to pursue my calling and to be able to make that difference. And it sounds like when you're talking, when you're talking about your girlfriend, I listened to a couple of your episodes and you mentioned in one, I think it was with uh, a friend of yours who worked for FedEx uh, that she wanted to go into CPS work. And I, I truly understand why it Mm -hmm. is, you know, the opportunity to help families in crisis is really something special. Unfortunately, I can't say that CPS makes it easy to do that. And working in civil service, working for the government, it is a particularly difficult environment. You have to be willing to really make friends with the people, with your superiors. Kiss up Mm -hmm. to them. Biggest mistake I made. When I initially started working for CPS, I walked through the door in my office and I said, I'm not here to make friends. I'm here to do my job. I could not have gotten off, you know, gotten off to a worse start than if I, than saying those words. That is how it operates in these government offices. And it's not particularly healthy and it's not focused on the on actually helping the families it's focused on everybody keeping their jobs and making their minimum efforts Mm -hmm. Uh, those that actually have a lot of integrity and actually care don't really last long the burnout rates are exceptionally high especially for the pay too truly unbelievable since cps work is like what one of the lowest paying jobs and so having a lot of that stress and just everything you have to deal with, like how you said, that burnout comes out quickly. <clears throat> oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You know, it's... Uh, this is my girlfriend. She just arrived. To... Welcome. You know, I mean, just being under cross-examination is very stressful. And usually I would have very little prep time, uh, especially if there was a removal uh, it would be, you know, I remember one time I was in a child safety conference for two hours, a long one. All of a sudden I hear I've got a new case and I have to be in court in 15 minutes and I have to read up on the case. I have to figure out what happened and I'm about to be cross-examined uh, on this. And somehow I made it through, but there is the amount of stress for the amount of pay and the limitations and how you actually are able to help just because look, if it came to just getting 
a client a piece of furniture. The amount of people I had to go through, it could take months to do it. And if it was a piece of furniture that, you know, for example, if it was a crib and it wouldn't be able to get there in time, you might have to make alternative arrangements or it might have to be a removal. Uh, you know, there was some, those, those were the times where it really broke your heart because it wasn't as if I was making the rules either. And I didn't really have control over the situation. You know, I would be overridden. But again, you know, seeing a lot of this, getting the experience, this is why I left and started CPS Protect is now there is another option. Granted, the hard part is actually for people who who don't trust, who obviously their trust may have been violated by CPS. They don't trust themselves to handle it. They've heard plenty of false promises. Actually convincing them that what I have to offer is legitimate is not easy. In addition, when it comes to the marketing, you know, right now we're in the middle of the holiday season, so it's quieter for me. Um, I can't imagine anyone ever presenting a gift card. This is why we don't offer this. Presenting a gift card to their spouse or their friend for our services. Here, get a preemptive consultation, a home assessment, and a risk assessment. I got you a gift card. Merry Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. I'm sorry. I can't imagine that ever going over well. Hmm. So... I just don't offer that at all to, to to save everybody. If look, if it were me and I offered that to my girlfriend, I get slapped in the face. So, <laughs> and you know what? I will say I probably deserve it. Uh, something like this is very difficult to actually market in some traditional ways. Um, but again, it's really important. And I love that I get to pursue my calling and I get to do this on my own terms because whereas it was very difficult to help families back when I was working for CPS, it is very easy with each client that I work with to make a difference here. Mm -hmm. I mean, the hardest part is when I have a client who, you know, a prospect who actually calls and says, Jay, I need you to help me, but I'm nine months in and we're you know potentially in three months for they're looking to terminate parental rights and i don't know what to do and all this other stuff you know and even when it's a minor case but for me i don't provide services for reunification that typically is more attorney heavy so as a child welfare consultant that's not my area and for some of these families it's like, well, I can't afford a, you know, $8,000 or $10,000 retainer, you know, for a private attorney. So I'm stuck with what the court will offer me. But unfortunately, there's really nothing that I can do in that scenario. And if I went and said, okay, I can help you, they're not going to get their money's worth out of it. Because could I provide some value? Potentially, yes. But not much. I mean, when I can refer, I do. But the truth is, when it comes to families who've truly been wronged by the child welfare system, there is not much available to them. For lack of a better way of putting it, they're kind of screwed. 
it, it pains me to put it that way. But if it gets far enough with child welfare, there's not much you can do. And you're at the mercy of the system itself. It's truly tragic. I wish I could change it um, by myself. But even for me, even for me, and I've done some, taken on some crazy stuff myself, this is much bigger than me. So mm -hmm. I'm doing what I can, and that's CPS Protect. Uh, we serve, in fact, I've tried to maximize our reach. We, right now, we serve all 50 states. Uh, our website is cpsprotect.com. If people are interested in finding out more, actually, because some people have had some difficulty, because again, with the recession and some in the lower class, it's not like you can afford $500, $600 for our services. On Thursday, we're actually launching a subscription blog called CPS Knowledge. And while that's going to be less personalized to individuals, uh, each week we will release an article on a CPS term, a CPS law, CPS in the news, with some recommendations on actually how to handle, you know, how this is relevant, how to actually handle that aspect. And I think that that could be really good. And for that, it's for the annual subscription, it, it would actually be $4.99 a month. And for the monthly, $6.99. So we're really looking to, you know, I'm looking to reach out to those who even may be tighter financially. Because mm -hmm. the truth is, that more than half of CPS investigations do hit the lower class. The research is pretty darn clear on this. Um, How come? Well, that there are debates as to why, but from what I can see, what it looks like is unfortunately there's some aspects of poverty that do arise as safety concerns. So let's take, for example, uh, an allegation of ina inadequate food, clothing, or shelter. So the minimum standard of care usually for nutrition, look, as long as your child's getting three meals a day and they're not starving to death, and it's age appropriate, they're fine. That does mean that you could, in theory, take your child to McDonald's and get them happy meals for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, and meet the minimum standard of care there. But if they have a diagnosis of diabetes and you're still doing that, not so much. The, that would be considered medical neglect. But the problem is, if it's a subjective standard and the CPS worker says, well, you don't have enough food for a full week here or when was the last time you went grocery shopping it would you know and it might have been two weeks and it's because i've had difficulty affording it but there's a whole bunch of food pantries in the area that she didn't get to you know even if she's you know applying to recertify her food stamps for example then that may still 
qualify as a substantiated case. And so you see small things like that where unfortunately where it's borderline with the minimum standard of care and it's up for interpretation. There, there is no universal definition for abuse. There is no universal definition for neglect. Uh, and there is a lot left up to interpretation. And when that happens, it, you know, especially we, we talked earlier about the incentive structure for taking action rather than not taking action, even on the smallest things. Unfortunately, this is what leads to, uh, at least in my opinion, more involvement with the lower class. They also have less resources. So when there is a removal, uh, the middle class is more likely to either through loans or uh, through networks or you know their own funding are able to afford an attorney. You have someone who can only get an attorney appointed by the court who might have 80 some odd cases. Well, you're pretty much on your own. And that's not really a good circumstance. Um, and the, that's really, unfortunately, that's really what it comes down to is everything costs money. But at the same time, because I, I have been asked this, would giving people more money solve the problem? And the answer is, I don't think so. And I think that this is where some of where things get a little more complicated, because if you take a look now, it may not be too politically correct to say this, but let's take a look at the black community. So the great the great society programs back in the day when they were before before they were implemented. In the black community. Two parent homes represented about 80 percent. In the black community flipped to today. You're looking at about 20%. Boys, especially in the African-American community, that do not have a male father, that do not have a father figure. So even if they don't have a father in the home, like a father in the community, a father figure at school, a baseball coach, something, they are substantially less likely to move up and become more successful. They are substantially more likely to be in, become involved in the criminal justice system. And they are substantially less likely to have strong, healthy relationships, particularly in the romantic department, because there are certain things that the father does teach that they just don't, you know, that the mother just doesn't model the same way. Like, for example, how to treat a woman. And so that is a factor. In addition, the outcomes for foster care are extraordinarily poor. So you see people who have had CPS involvement but in the foster care system, you know, they've been abused. The cycle uh, has a higher risk of continuing. They also have a higher risk of incarceration. Uh, so, you know, and a lower rate of success. Granted, there are some foster kids who go through the ringer and do become very successful. Um, but uh, when you look at the numbers, they are not the majority. Uh, and that's another issue in and of itself. So together, I think there are a lot of factors. And just throwing more money at the problem isn't going to solve it. 
this is truly a complicated thing, but it's one that I think needs more pragmatic conversations. There's a lot of talking about it. Like in New York, the feds are currently investigating them, you know, New York City's agency, ACS, for racism, for actually going after, you know, black families more. And yes, uh, black families tend to have a higher rate of investigation, but they're not really asking why. And it doesn't look like there's going to be any change. It looks to be more performative than anything else. So if you're actually going to look to change the status quo, you actually have to ask why. And I'm not seeing that question asked. I think it's an, and I think it's an important one. And if you say that it's because they don't know how to meet the minimum standard, is there's certain race people don't know how to meet the minimum standard of care, or they don't have access to the resources, and there's plenty around. I think that's insulting. You know, really, you know, if you're gonna say that about say that about a community is justification to throw more money at the problem, I think that's particularly insulting, and that in itself would be racist. So it, 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 I do think that we need to have more pragmatic conversations and really look to address it in a more effective way, because what's going on here is not addressing it. And it's shameful to see that kind of just, I'm sorry, there's no other word for it, virtue signaling. That's really what it is. I don't expect anything to come of, come of that investigation. I've heard promises time and again. I, I really have. And it's it's terrible. We need more. We need more people talking about it. That's why I'm on your podcast today. The mm -hmm. more people are talking about these situations, the more people that are doing things like me with CPS Protect, foundations like the Family Preservation Foundation, the activist law firm Children's Rights. Uh, the more you have people actually trying to do the right thing, the better this is going to be. But the important, in order for there to be this change, there's one thing that needs to happen more than anything else. And it's that people who don't actively have skin in the game, that aren't actively under a CPS investigation, need to start talking about it too. They need to be up in arms too. Because unless you have that, the it, it, the story will never reach the critical mass that is needed to actually influence the change that is wanted. These stories get their 15 minutes of fame, and then they're out, then they're out of the public eye until something happens, and this happens again and again and again. So I'm here doing my part, and I'm hoping to see in the coming years more people doing their part. We are seeing that wrongful CPS actions, and by wrongful, I don't mean illegal, because they may be by the book, but still questionable uh, in terms of the actions taken. 
they what used to be locally exclusive stories are now making the national news and it's happening more and more and i'm really happy to see that i think the other factor is we are seeing parents and i although i try not to delve into politics we're starting to see parents particularly school age children start to become a voting class in their own right because I'm sure you've heard plenty in the news over the past couple of years about school choice and whether school, you know, whether parents should have a say in what their children are taught. Now, I'm not taking a position, uh, you know, in favor of the school or in favor of the parents here. But what this has done is this has put forth a unique question, which is, are they your children or the government's children? Who gets to make the decisions? And that's the battle that's going on that's going on right now. Um, so we're seeing parents start to be more skeptical. And so I am interested to actually see where this goes. I think we are at a time coming out of the COVID pandemic where people are thinking more about their individual rights, particularly their negative rights. Now, when I say negative rights, I'm talking about uh, negative rights are rights that restrain the government from interfering in your autonomy. Positive rights are, you know, to the contrary, are the government granting you something by removing from something else. So, for example, the right to housing. If you have to take somebody's land uh, or whether by eminent domain or otherwise, to provide some sort of free housing, you know, that would be a positive right if the, you know, if housing were a right. Now, a negative right, for example, uh, your parental rights against government interference to a point, uh, that would be considered a negative right. The right to bear arms is Second Amendment, whether you agree with it or not, uh, prevents the government from interfering with your right to bear arms. The First Amendment, freedom of speech, expression, religion. It doesn't prevent, uh, you know, you hear about Twitter all the time now. Well, Twitter could interfere with speech legally because they weren't a government entity. The First Amendment only protects you against interference in your right to free speech from the government or public institutions. Uh, so, here, this will be very interesting, especially when it, when it comes to school choice, how that plays out in the child welfare scene. Yeah, something else? Oh my this is like probably her second time, so she might be a little bit nervous. Um, That's okay. You know, I am uh, going to college for this, and um, you're majoring in social work. So do I you think why. Th that's? Do you think it's worth it? Going into child welfare, no. But if you're going to go for your master's degree, your MSW, I say that is absolutely worth it. 
because if you can get your master's in social work and get that licensure, that will open a lot of doors. There are a lot of things you can do with that. You could also go into private practice for psychotherapy and get your LCSW. Um, and if you want to continue schooling after that, once you have your LCSW, you can get your certificate in psychoanalysis if you want. Uh, but with the bachelor's in social work, there's not going to be a whole lot. So you're going to have to, the master's degree is going to have to be part of the package uh, if you're going to do it. But there is a lot that you can do with a master's in social work. Uh, so I wouldn't, I wouldn't discount you from going into it. Would I recommend going into uh, child protective services? For 99% of people, I would say no. And that would include my recommendation to you just because of um, it is truly dangerous. It is, um, it, it is a lot of work for the money. The stress is exceptionally high. Um, and civil service, working for the government is cutthroat to begin with. Um, if There's a lot of restrictions. Place, if you're looking for a place where you think that you, where you're going to get the fulfillment that you're looking for, that you're experiencing in college, when you're thinking about helping people, the government is the wrong place to do it. But that doesn't mean that social work is a bad field or that there is no room for you. I think there certainly is. And another thing to note is human services are going to be the most difficult to replace with artificial intelligence. So they are going, they are going to be among the most resistant jobs to replacement with AI. So if you're looking for something that is not going to be obsolete in the next 10 years, social work is not a bad way to go, but go for the master's degree. You don't think that like if I got if I got with a certain company that I could move my way up that it would be worth that? Like do you think I would be able with to make that, more money if I stuck with a certain company and moved up? Well, you could, but not with a bachelor's in social work. Uh because because in the social work field, they take they take the credential they take the credentialing more seriously than they would, for example, in cybersecurity or in finance, as long as you are, you know, as, or in marketing, for example. It, it, there's plenty that you can do without a degree, but the credentialing in social work is a lot more important. It is a lot more government heavy. So it is harder to move up because they will ask for that degree and that license when it comes to so to a lot of social work jobs. It's not that hard work doesn't, you know, it doesn't reward you. It's that sometimes in certain industries, there are roadblocks or they do rely more on licensure than others, medicine, law, uh, social work and mental health tend to fall into those categories a lot more than just about anywhere else. So the even after COVID. That's correct. Mm -hmm. And remember that a lot of people are get, getting masters, getting masters degrees. But when licensure is a factor, this is always going to be an issue. Uh, so 
and social work is just one of those fields, you're not really going to do much with the bachelor's degree if you want to actually be in the social work field. Look at me. I have my bachelor's degree in psychology. For health reasons, I was stopped short of going for my PhD, but I did, you know, I made the most of it and I left and started my own firm, you know, my own consulting firm, helping families prepare for and navigate child protective services investigations. And this is something where there was complete uncharted territory. There's no licensure. Nobody else is doing this. I'm creating something out of nothing. What's established in the social work field usually depends heavily on licensure. So with a BSW, could you get maybe a could you get a case manager position doing something? Yes. But if you're looking for more than that, if you're really looking to move up, then the bachelor's degree is just not going to be enough. And why do you think the pay is so low when it comes to social work? Obviously, needing to have all the <clears throat> the degree and everything, why is it so low? Well, that comes down to, unfortunately, what is the value of the service you're providing? A lot of this is government, you know, is taxpayer funded. But the return on it is not particularly high. And if the return on it is not is not particularly high because there isn't a whole lot of demand for this for the service, and you can't really raise the price. Well, how do you actually, you know, how do you actually make it more lucrative? If your demand for it is mostly low income, how do you make more, you know, how do you make more money off of it? You can't, you know, the price always has to be lower. It has to be subsidized by the government. And so, unfortunately, and this is not to talk about the social value of the service, but to talk about the financial value of the service compared to something like cybersecurity right now, or compared to, uh, you know, iPhones, uh, as much as I hate them myself, but the there is more financial value because the demand for it, even at a higher price, is substantially higher. So social work is never going to really be subject to the same economic pressures, especially because it is so heavily taxpayer subsidized. So what ends up happening, what you have here is the biggest opportunity for social work to be uh, financially lucrative are in two areas. One is in nonprofit executives, and the other is in those who go for their LCSW, licensed clinical social worker, and provide psychotherapy in private practice. Those are the two areas where you're going to make the most in social work, hands down. Like three figures. Five figures. Uh, I would say if you want to get into the if if you want to have any chance of getting into the six figure mark, that's what you have to do. You're either a nonprofit executive or you are very successful in private practice. If you want to get to the six figure mark, because I feel like it's not really about the money for me. I feel like it's like I just want to help kids. Like the heart. She has she has a big heart. Uh, 
the hard work. Yes, yes, we've all heard the cliche. Uh, but but yes. So obviously, when money is not the only objective, when you are really looking to do something to help children, for example, unfortunately, you are more likely to take lower pay. Uh, it's there's a cost to every choice that you make. And if helping children is really important, if that's what you're calling is, then unfortunately your pay is not going to be as high as if you decided to be a stockbroker. Now, do you want to be a stockbroker? Okay, then you're going to have to make a sacrifice in the financial area. You just are. Which is okay with me. That's okay. That's okay. Look, I made the same sacrifice. I did. So there's nothing wrong with making that decision. You just have to be okay with the decision that you're making. Am I going to help a lot of kids, though? Because the way that you were explaining it makes it sound like the government has a lot of ways that they don't let you help how you need to help. Well, it depends. If you're going... It depends on what you're doing. Sometimes there are nonprofit contractors that will be doing after school programs. If you're looking to go into child protective services specifically, I can't say I, you know, I can't say that it's going to be particularly helpful. It is very difficult to cut through all the red tape. And especially if you are not good at kissing up to your employer, it is very difficult to do that. There is that kind of culture working in government. Now, granted, some of the nonprofit contractors, you know, that work outside the child welfare system, so to speak, are not necessarily bad. And that can be very lucrative. But the truth is, when it comes to social services, the best paying uh, employer is always going to be the government. And you have to be willing to deal with all that entails if you want to go after that. It depends on, again, what type of salary you're looking for, you know, to to keep your quality of life. What is the minimum that you would need? Are you willing to move because different jurisdictions may, may pay more, some may pay less, some may have a higher cost of living, some may have a lower cost of living. So there's a lot when it comes to that. We do need good people like you who actually want to help because there are a lot of people that let's let's be real they just don't so i would never want to discourage you from trying to do the right thing i think we need more people that actually want to do that and i commend you for going in with those intentions but you do have to think about you too because here's another cliche you can't help anyone else if you can't help yourself first. You need to help yourself first because if you're not if you're not available, if you're not safe, if you're not, um, you know, if you're not well fed, if you are not, if you don't have a roof over your head, if you don't, you know, if you're not healthy, if you're not mentally in the right frame of mind. How can you help others? You need to in my classes. They stress um, self care hard. 
Yes, uh, and uh, as they should. Still, when you get out into the workforce, they'll also stress it. And by stress it, I mean they'll say it. They won't actually, you know, they will give you, uh, they will give you work to the contrary, but they will say that self-care is important. I remember when I was uh, working in CPS, and this came up several times in some zone-wide meetings that we had. They would ask us how we handled, you know, with everything that was so high stress with me, you know, having, you know, you know, from the hang up calls to the death threats to the, um, you know, being called every name in the book, yelled at, screamed at. So often I, I had said, you know, this question would occasionally come up. How do you disconnect when you go on vacation? And I would say the answer is I don't really, because there's such an emotional investment that is made when you're doing the so-called heart work that although I didn't actually answer any calls or do any work, I would check my email at least once a day. Occasionally, I responded to an email. But this was so when I got back to my desk, I didn't have a bunch of dumpster fires waiting for me. I knew what I was up against. And that alone allowed me to find balance. And I always got flack for that. I always got flack for that. People attacked me for even making that recommendation, saying, no, you need to disconnect. You can't do that. You want to know how to survive? You can't just say, well, when you're dealing with very vulnerable families, and this is also emotionally charged, you can't just drop it and be fine when you go away. That's not how it works. And ironically, that was the expectation. But unfortunately, when you say the quiet part out loud that you can't have it all, you can't have your cake and eat it too, people get upset. I remember when I when I was doing investigations, the reason that I was different in the way I did it is I always went in with 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 the idea of how can I get this family to want to work with me for a reason other than if you don't work with me, I'll take you to court. Because threatening somebody with court was the easy way out. But if you ever wanted to see lasting change, you can't just hold a hammer over their head and threaten them with compliance because as soon as you as soon as that hammer is gone, as soon as that threat is gone, they're back to the status quo. They're back to square one doing exactly what they were doing before. If they don't want to change, it's never going to happen. So you have to find the reason as to why they actually want to change. And that's where they didn't technically call it this, but this is what it was. I got some training in what the military calls tactical empathy, which is really how do you use empathy to ensure that the outcome that you want is the outcome that you get? How do you, you how do you use that to get somebody to react to you in a certain way? And this is the this is the kind of stuff that I had to use, but sometimes this was the difference between something getting out of control and something staying in control. I remember a case that I had. 
that was assigned to me. It's just a case that she said, with three children, it was a case of a bad match. There was, it was during COVID, the therapist that was doing Zoom therapy with the kid, the father was out of the home due to some domestic violence issue, and the therapist was encouraging communication with him. There was a restraining order in place, and mom was really stressed out. Mom was out of work. Her kids were her whole life. She was stressed out. And it basically, I come in, she doesn't want to see me. She's ready to slam the door in my face. And it takes me about 10 minutes, but I convince her to let me in. She's still not interested in letting me interview the kids. Um, still very hostile toward me. But we're sitting down and we're talking. And I'm seeing her, her mind racing as she's talking about the allegations. And something occurs to me. So I ask her a question. And this question is so shocking to her because it seems so far out of left field that she stops in surprise. I ask her, what are your hobbies? What do you like to do for fun? I see her just staring at me like, like I was speaking Mandarin Chinese. It was, so I asked her again, what do you like to do for fun? And she's like, well, I have my kid, you know, you know, I have my kids and I've taken care of them. And I'm like, well, yes, but do you like to read? Do you like to play board games? Do you like to uh, go out with friends? She's like, well, I don't really have time for that. I'm like, you seem really stressed. And she starts to see where I'm going. I'm like, you need to get a, you need to get a hobby. Look at you. You're a single mother trying to take care of three kids. You're stressed out. This look, this therapist just doesn't seem just doesn't seem to be a good match. Let's. I ask her about her support. So her mother lives in the area, you know, and she has a she has a couple of friends, and she talks about what she used to do. And I'm like, look, I got to go through the motions in order to close this case. But what I'm seeing here. This looks like a case of a bad match for a therapist. I understand what's going on with the with the father and everything. But in order to close the case, I need to go through everything. Let me interview the kids. Show me around my house so I can do what I have to do. I will make a new referral to a clinic in the area that I've made referrals to before. Uh, and, you know, that should be a better match therapist for your daughter. And work with me. I may have to come a few more times just to get everything done. Work with me and this will be over and behind you. And at the end, so she did let me, inter she did let me interview the kids. I did get through the investigation. When I left that, for that initial visit, she said, I don't know if I'm supposed to say this, but I hate CPS, but I'm glad that if CPS had to come, that they at least sent you. And 
I did eventually end up substantiating the case. I did not meet the burden. Granted, could I have substantiated it? Yeah, with the subjectivity and ambiguity of everything, I could have. She also asked for a referral for herself for therapy, and it was really interesting to see that sometimes it really is that simple, but it's not usually treated that way. This is a case that could have gone either way, and yes, I put myself at a higher risk by not substantiating it. Um, but this is not the this is not the norm. Uh, I mean, I remember getting flack when I referred to a community-based organization instead of prevention services for somebody on a substantiated case because they don't have the same relationship with CPS that the, the contractors do, the prevention services contractors. Uh, so it, what this comes down to is it was not easy to do the right thing, and I often got a lot of flack for it. And eventually I got tired of it because you can only fight for so long. This is also why I knew I wasn't I wasn't going to be moving up in child, you know, you know, at the Child Protective Services Agency I was at was because I wasn't kissing up to people. Granted, I wasn't making my supervisors look bad, my superiors look bad, which is why I had a completely clean record. I was never written up not once, um, but at the same time, this is something that truly, if you wanna do the right thing, you're gonna have to fight even more under much higher stress, and it's not something most people can sustain. I'm someone who can take, a, 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 take quite a beating and still get up and be fine after that. Most people who are that emotionally invested cannot either they have to either they have to rationalize what they're doing and at that point they lose sight. I remember every time I did a removal, I always made a commitment that I would not sleep well that night because I needed to remember I, I needed to realize the gravity of what I had done, because even if it was so bad that a removal was warranted, you're still separating a family, and it's still traumatic for that child, even if it actually is in the best interest. It is still traumatic, and if you go to bed feeling just as good as you were before you did that, there's a problem at that point. If it ever got to the point where I there was no difference for me in my evening routine and how I felt, then I knew that I was done in child welfare. I made a commitment to always do that. This is not the way that a lot of people actually approach this. It's really unfortunate, um, but we do live in a world that is not necessarily very kind. Uh, I will say that one of the scars that I have from my time in child welfare, actually a couple of them, one of them is it is very difficult to fight the cynicism. When you see enough bad, you tend to see it in other places. The other is I had gotten to the point where I had myself so under control, so under control that my ability to actually express my negative emotions was compromised. 
And it got to the point that one day, uh, I actually decided to go back to, uh, to go into counseling because simply because I I saw the writing on the wall. I couldn't actually the, when I would get upset, I couldn't actually express because I was so used to keeping everything under a lid. I couldn't actually express it. I couldn't let it out. So eventually, it's like a pot of boiling water. Eventually, it's going to boil over the top, and you don't know who you're going to hurt once it boils over. That is a recipe for disaster. And it took me quite a while to actually be able to start expressing those emotions again because I was keeping them in because my compo- because sometimes with the neighborhoods I was going into, my mere survival depended on me being at the top of my game, being alert, being aware, uh, keeping my composure perfect because God forbid it wasn't and I missed something that could be the difference between me be, between me between me walking home on my own two feet and me being delivered to my parents in a body bag and I knew it. Why do you think people disrespect uh, CPS workers so much, though? I never took it personally because there are a couple of reasons. One is they're frightened. They're scared. When CPS comes in, even if you're doing everything right, the question, you know, literally – when CPS knocks on your door, just by flashing their badge without saying anything, this is the message that's being sent. Hi, someone someone reported to the government that you're a bad parent, and I'm here to find out why. May I come in? How is that going to make you feel? You're going to be scared. You're going to be angry. You're going to be upset. This is how people react to this shock. And it's not like they were... It's not like they knew that CPS was showing up most of the time. They don't. It just gets sprung upon them. And if you expect that somebody is going to react and say, hi, can I get you a glass of water? Please come in. It's so good to see you. There's nothing wrong here. Let's just get this over with. No, no, that is not how human beings work. You should know this being in social work. Human beings do not work like that. When you are in that kind of situation, you are not going to react pleasantly. This is not tea time at the Barrington Country Club. This is CPS showing up and saying that you might be a bad parent, and I'm here to find out if that's the case. And if so, I could rip your family apart. You're not going to you're not going to offer them tea. This is not how it works. So, of course, with that amount of stress and that amount of fear and that amount of shock, the idea that anybody is going to handle that well is silly. So I never took that personally. I mean, granted, there were some people who were repeat criminals who just didn't want me here and saw the easiest way for me to go away was to threaten me with murder or, you know, flash a weapon or, uh, you know, call my phone and hang up repeatedly at like one o'clock in the morning, seven times, you know, <laughs> do it a few nights in a row. Um, this kind of this kind of thing did happen, and there were times where there was a real risk to my life. Uh, granted, again, I worked in very high crime neighborhoods in New York City, 
So this is not necessarily the experience of someone working in the suburbs or someone working in a more rural environment. Granted, it can happen, but we, ha we also have to take things into context. Let's not let this get too far out of control uh, in terms of uh, what the experience might be in Nebraska. How do you think it's the best way to protect yourself when you do have to go investigate someone, like investigate a parent or something, especially in a very high crime rate neighborhood? Yeah, there were two things that I did that protected me more than anything else. Uh, one was make it look like you belong there. Make it look like you know where you're going. If you're looking at your phone, looking at Google Maps, okay, People are already going to spot, okay, if you look like a CPS worker, you've got your bag, you've got your black book or whatever, people are going to, people are immediately going to see something. But if you look like you don't know where you're going, you are a prime robbery target. The second is, I trust my gut. If there is something that doesn't look right when I get, when I get to a home, doesn't feel right, I am not going to go in that home. Granted, I was very careful. I always take, took stock of all the exits. I always made sure there was a clear path between me and a reasonable exit that I could get to. Because if there was somebody behind me, corner, you know, cornering me in between, in between me and the door, that was going to be a problem. Because if things went sour, I would have no escape route. I was very careful with all that. If you're not hyper vigilant about this kind of stuff, and you talk to anybody in law enforcement, they'll tell you the same thing. It can be a split second decision that you let somebody go behind you, that you uh, that you uh, spot that you spot something before you go into a home that makes you uneasy, and you go in there. That could be the difference between you walking home on your own and you going home in a body bag. Um, granted, a lot of the people that I investigated was run of the mill stuff. Was that really in danger there? No. But in the neighborhoods where there were shootings every single day, yes, uh, there was some degree of real danger there. Um, there are plenty of people who live in high crime neighborhoods who are not criminals and trying to do the right thing. There are also plenty of people there that don't. So I'm not using this to bash the people that I investigated or the people living in the neighborhoods that I investigated. There are plenty that are law abiding citizens. Uh, so I wouldn't be so quick to uh, to dismiss everyone there. But when you look at the numbers and you look at the crime, I mean, yes, there is a very real threat. Did they teach you before that or did you just have to go into that and learn it on your own? I had to learn it on my own. I mean, granted, if we really felt that there was a concern, we could take a co-assist, we could take a colleague with us. But when you're so short staffed to begin with, usually it you'd be hard pressed to find someone to go with you. Uh, so this was something I had to learn on my own. And I consider myself lucky that I'm still around. And what do you think would be the best, uh, best way, especially for her being a woman? Uh, obviously, she probably has a higher chance of let's say when it comes to you know a father probably trying to hit up on her or something uh what do you think would be the best way for her to approach uh just cases that way like when they have to when she has to approach homes 
i.e. in also very crime, high crime rate neighborhoods. Trust your gut. If something doesn't feel right, don't go in. It may be your job. Deal with it with your supervisor later. That's what it, that's what it comes down to, because when, you know, if you if something doesn't seem right, it's probably not. And if you get shot and killed, that job will be there, will be filled by someone tomorrow. OK, they will mourn you, say, oh, what a terrible loss. And then they will move on with their lives and yours will stop in its tracks. It is never worth if you get that bad feeling, it is never worth going in there alone if you think that something is going on. Granted, you can't use that every time, but learn to trust your gut. Was there ever a time that you said, no, I'm not going in? There were times that there was one time where I demanded a co-assist based on the report. Uh, there were times that I there was never a time that I said I'm not going in, but there were times that I took extra precautions. But again, I was extremely careful with everything that I did. Um, most people do not go to those lengths. It is, you know, and especially because I was a guy, it's a little different. With women, it, there's no way around it. There is always going to be a higher risk. Um, it is one of the things that just comes with being a woman. There are some good things that come with that, and there are some things that are not so good. And uh, you know, the the reasons why women are more in danger here today, or it's a, it's a, that's a whole other conversation for another time. But um, unfortunately, this is the re this is the reality. Um, the, granted, child protective services and social work in general are female dominated. Uh, I was not in the majority as a male CPS worker, not by a long shot, but it, it but it is still more dangerous for women. Granted, look, as I, you know, as I said, with everything that I went through. You know, everything that I saw in, you know, in working for CPS, I left and I think it's the best decision that I ever made, truly. Um, it, it was not going to be the right place for me long term. I got the experience to do something potentially transformative. CPS Protective Consulting Services is literally my baby. <laughs> it is the, you know, it is my chance to make the difference that I set out to make working for CPS, but that I could not do working for CPS. Actually helping, helping families, because sometimes 
the concern really is that simple. And sometimes if a family knows in advance how to deal with CPS, then they don't have to go through all the other stuff. And it doesn't mean that CPS doing its job won't still catch the major offenders, but we need to level the playing field here because too many families are getting destroyed on the smallest stuff. And that's not what most people who go into social work set out to do. Granted, there are a lot of smoke and mirrors, so it can be very difficult to dissect how a lot of this works. Let me give you an example. You hear a lot of people say that child welfare, it, you know, is child trafficking. They sell, ch they make money off children. You hear this, what CPS typically says is, no, that's not true. Now, there is some truth to it. Granted, it's not as blunt as implied, but there is some truth to it. And the reason is that prevention services and foster care and kinship care are funded by the federal government through Title IV-E of the Social Security Act. So what happens is, let's take removal, for example, the child, a child is placed in foster care. Well, these are typically handled by, you know, once at that point, the investigation is basically done and it's handed over to a foster care case manager. Now, historically, this was still part of the government. Now it's usually a contractor, a private nonprofit agency that does the foster care case management for CPS. And these, so CPS pays them, they submit some paperwork to the federal government and the federal government reimburses child protective services for that. Now what happens is these foster care, these private foster care agencies, case management agencies, they negotiate these very, very, very expensive contracts with the top people at these child welfare agencies in the government, which makes these inherently political, these contracts. And in order to fund those contracts, they need the funding from Title IV-E from the federal government. And so these political transactions that allow these public-private partnerships, uh, these business-to-government nonprofit contractors to do this, well, in order to fund those contracts, you need the kids, you need the, um, you know, you need the federal funding to do that. And so this truly is, in some ways, some pretty sleazy politics. So no, CPS workers aren't paid extra to remove kids. That's not true. But there is some truth to the financial incentive when it comes to removing kids. Now, granted, do they do that and say, we need to remove this many kids to fund, uh, you know, to, to fund the, this foster care agency contract? No. But because every you know the definitions for abuse and neglect are fairly ambiguous and the incentive structure makes it so they act very quickly well what ends up you know on smaller things what happens is they don't really need to 
finger individuals and say, well, we need to actually meet the quota here. It's not hard to do. And then when they have more, ki more kids who were removed or it was for a longer period of time or something else, they can go say, well, we need more funding because obviously there's more of a need. So the agency grows. This, you know, and this pays for more. So there is some truth to the fact, to the allegation that CPS gets paid to remove kids. It's not technically, um, it's not technically accurate. Like if you work for CPS, you're not gonna see an increase in your paycheck for removing more kids. Or if the CPS workers, your supervisor remove more kids, you're not gonna see that. But this is, the way it works and those allegations shouldn't be dismissed outright. Uh, there is something to it. I have followed the rabbit hole quite a ways to figure this out, but it, you know, it, even if the people who are doing, doing the removals aren't getting paid more, the policies that are put in place are designed to do that and they're put in place by the same people negotiating these contracts. And that's where it truly becomes an issue and it does leave a bad taste in my mouth because this is an agency that, you know, Child Protective Services is supposed to be helping kids and helping families. And here, when you break it down, you're starting to see, eh, is it really the case? Money is, everything in the world right now always has been well yes of course but with politics also comes power and you know that's something that we have to keep in mind if you look back at the old uh you know before the government took over child protective services because originally these were done by uh private organizations called societies for the prevention of cruelty to children the first one being the New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, founded in 1875, uh, actually by the founder of the Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals. Um, yes, let it sink in that there was a Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals before there was one for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, uh, by decades. So, it, what happened was in the New Deal, there were some, before the New Deal, there really weren't a lot of laws that protected children. Then in the New Deal, they started to have some child labor laws. Then you started to see in the 1960s, custodial abuse and neglect were decriminalized. And the remedial courts, that is the juvenile and family courts were created. Uh, at the same time, in the 1960s, the network of societies for the prevention of cruelty to children started to falter. Uh, you know, some closed due to lack of funding, others closed due to lack of staffing. There just wasn't enough interest. And so between the 1960s and the 1980s, slowly this died off and the government started picking up the mantle. It developed their, the states developed their own central registries and assumed the, uh, the, uh, the mantle for uh, conducting uh, CPS investigations. Uh, and by the 1980s, you had the entire country uh, 
CPS was now a government entity. The Societies for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children, the few that remained at the time, weren't really doing the investigations anymore. The only one I know of, actually there are two that remain. One merged, it's a prevention services agency, I believe it was the Massachusetts Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children. The New York Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Children also remains. They do counseling for CPS workers in New York City. They do mandated reporter training and they remain the custodians of the records from the child abuse cases they investigated. But that's all that remains. So basically, in terms of the private sector not affiliated with the government, CPS Protect Consulting Services is basically it. I'll make sure to keep to put your website down in the description uh, for both the YouTube and on the others, so then people can go check Ab it out. Absolutely. Yep, that's cpsprotect.com. We can also be reached by phone at 844-633-KIDS. That's toll free, 844-633-KIDS. Perfect, perfect. I'll make sure to uh, add both of them, <clears throat> both the website and the phone number uh, in the description. So when people need to contact you and I do know you did say you uh, that you're willing to operate in all 50 states, right? Yes, we serve all 50 states. Perfect. But yeah, I'll make sure to I'll make sure to have you down there. Uh, same when I post it around on like, like on Facebook and whatever, I'll make sure to to tag you along on your website and all that fun stuff. Thank you very much. It's been great being here. I appreciate you having me. Uh, have a wonderful evening. Thanks for answering my questions. No problem. My pleasure. Thank you for coming along. And this episode will come out uh, sun, uh, this Sunday around uh, 11 a.m. Well, uh, Central Time for me, so about 12 p.m. your time, uh, Eastern Time, right? Or uh, yeah. yeah, yeah, 12 p.m. Right. right. Yep. I was <laughs> making sure because right. I know I do know New York is Eastern, but I was just trying to make sure if for how big it is i know if they operate in a different time zone but i was pretty sure it was eastern new york is not that mystical oh, well, <laughs> hey it's still a place i want to go see new york city still a place i want to want to go visit i mean i'm more for the financial district the pizza statue of liberty the, i mean the yankee game the, <laughs> the yankees i mean i know they're they're gonna be a big one uh, I know for like the Giants, the New York Giants, the Jets, probably see a game there too. But I yeah, appreciate you wanting to come. Uh, like I said, I'll put in uh, your website and the phone number in the descriptions when it comes out. Same on Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, all the all all the social medias that I posted on. My pleasure. If there's anything else I can do, if you have any questions, anything else, you have my email, if you have my contact info. Again, thank you for having me on. Of course, and I'll make sure to refer anyone that if they do have any CPS questions or any CPS help, um, or same with her, when if let's say later on she has any, I'll keep you in mind and I'll make sure to 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 have them contact you. All right, great. Thank you, Marco. Have a wonderful right. evening. Thank you. You have a good one too. Bye. All right, bye-bye.